millions of people around the world can have completely new and fulfilling experiences at the touch of a button that enrich their lives, right? That give them more fulfillment, that give them more opportunity, that give them a chance to try new things, to be new things, to meet people they never would have met otherwise, to create value they never would, maybe to have jobs that they couldn't otherwise have had, right? Wherever you have a mobile phone, you'll have a job. I, I think this, this metaverse stuff might end up being much more important than we think. That's Herman Narula, the co-founder and CEO of Improbable, a British game and technology company and a unicorn which few people really know about. This is our last episode for this season, so we wanted to bring you an absolute corker. Improbable, which was born a decade ago, was working on the ideas behind a kind of metaverse long before Mark Zuckerberg changed Facebook to meta, even if Improbable didn't call it that. Their journey is an unusual one, especially for the British tech scene. They became a unicorn basically without anyone knowing what they did, but now they are telling their story. If you've never heard of the term metaverse before, where have you been? It's basically a virtual world you can enter using a headset. Some think it's the future of the internet. According to Herman, the metaverse won't just be for gaming, but somewhere you can do anything. Work, attend concerts, go to the cinema, or just hang out with your friends. There is loads of excitement about the metaverse right now, with advances in technology meaning that the idea is becoming a reality and Improbable has played a huge part in that. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm a founder myself. In my conversations with other entrepreneurs, I tried to find out what really got them to where they are today. Now, Improbable isn't Herman's first business. Growing up in London, his childhood was filled with video games, programming, Dungeons and Dragons. At just 11, he built his first computer game company. It might not have been a success, but he learned some important lessons. Turns out at 11 years old, you know, you're not the best at this. But no, I was learning to code and I discovered SourceForge, which was like this open source community, uh, still a thing, of, of, of people kind of out there. And I wanted to build a game with other people who, who were coding as well. And so I put up like help wanted ads in like a variety of these like really early um, games forums for game developers. And like at first I got no reaction because I had the same like messages that everybody else did. I want to make MMO, you know, for free, please help me, you know, and obviously nobody, nobody will. And then I realized if you, if you aimed lower, so if you basically just put out something that was a lot less ambitious and was properly spell checked, which was a huge thing back then, you know, in, in the quality of help wanted ads, you could get a lot of attention. So I had like hundreds of applicants for what was basically just like a small, you know, collective of people. I think we were making a chess game at the time. And we, we made a little bit of progress over like a year, two years. It was actually quite cool. A lot of, I learned a lot from it. The whole thing obviously completely crumbled and collapsed and we never shipped anything. I, I was 11 and, you know, I, you know, but it was funny that I don't think anybody else in the group knew how young I was or understood, uh, you know, what, what we were, you know, where we were going. But it was great even then to see the magic and the chemistry of like working with better, smarter people and what you can learn from that. And I think for me, that, that experience was very helpful in then when we, you know, went on to build Improbable and to do other things, realizing that the chemistry with those people, the experience of hanging out with people who you genuinely want to spend time with is often more important than having any idea what you're actually doing, which <laughs> might sound crazy, but you know, if, if you as an entrepreneur and you with the group of people that you're with, if you're in the right climate, the right environment, the right energy, then you have superpowers. You can do anything. As a group, you can figure it out as you go along. And so that was a useful experience for me in many ways. I think it's really interesting. You know, um, there's a there's a great bit in the Pixar book where he talks about, you know, the most fragile, that, that Steve Jobs taught them the most fragile thing in the world is an idea. And it all just depends on who's in the room with you at the time and how they respond to that idea. 
Um, and that can shape or change the world. And it's just that fragile. And I think the things you're saying about improbable, you know, being with the right people, the right ideas, the right energy, you can see how that stuff exponentially goes on a journey. No, you're right. I mean, I think um, it also requires the ability to create an environment. And this I learned watching some of my family businesses' troubles as well. Uh, my family at the time had a family business, which my whole family worked in, every member of my family worked in. So, and actually I kind of saw my family business uh, do very well for a while. And then, you know, the 2008 crisis happened. This is long before I started Improbable, you know, and I saw my family business do very badly as well in that time period. You know, there's this bizarre tendency among the, the, the news media and entrepreneurs and uh, all of the people around you, including investors and others, to focus on you. And you then believe or start to believe that what's important is that you're some kind of superhero that can solve any problem and can do anything. You see this kind of around sort of cult of personality of Elon Musk, right? And without making any value judgment, I would argue that it's just not a very, it's it's a very dangerous, difficult, inauthentic and bad thing to try to be or to try to somehow be better than the people you work with or to be superior to the people that you work with or for your authority or your leadership to rely upon some perceived super quality that you have because it creates an environment and a culture. And again, I saw this in my family business where you are not allowed to be wrong as a leader. And if you are wrong, it erodes your authority and that creates a situation where in the end, no one can tell the truth and no one can see the truth. And I think if you're building an ambitious company or you're trying to do something hard, you're going to fail thousands and thousands of times and you're going to do humiliatingly awfully bad things that are just going to be terrible. Like, I mean, the, we're a 10 year old company. Things are finally going really well. We found like a lot of success. But um, what I will say is that that journey was littered with corpses and horror, right? You know, from one to one, you know, real direction shifts and pivots. And if you aren't creating an environment of people where it's where you and them can all be honest with each other about when things have gone wrong, why they've gone wrong, and also what your limitations are as people and what your, what your lack of capacity are as, uh, as people, it's extremely difficult to adapt. And, you know, on the flip side, I would say there are some success stories, you know, fellow entrepreneurs that I've seen, people that I've engaged with, who succeeded so fast and so easily and encountered so little resistance that it almost didn't matter what they did. So I guess bringing it all together, I would say there's this dangerous misperception that I matter at all to a company like Improbable when I really don't. Like the the, the collective of people that we've created is so awesome precisely because it's not reliant upon some perception of me as having some amazing ability or capability. I think that's a really important point. And um, you learn this, you learn this in a lot of different ways, but actually one of the first ways that you kind of learn it is, uh, you know, and I shared this recently when reflecting on the failure of my last company, I think one of the main reasons we failed, we got to a certain stage, I was younger um, less experience. And I thought, although, you know, you were, you were the same age when you were not making these mistakes, I'm sure, but people asked me questions and I tried to come up with all the answers because I thought it was important to be the smartest person in the room. And I learned too late that that was absolutely not a requirement. And what's much more important is empowering people to go find their own answers and build that kind of culture around knowledge sharing and learning and upskilling. Um, so I can massively relate. And obviously, as a founder, you can just become a bottleneck if you do this stuff wrong, if you put yourself at the center of, of the mission and, and everything. I think you said that really well. I mean, just reflecting a little bit, I mean, it's strange. Some of the questions you've asked me already make me feel uncomfortable, which is weird because I never get uncomfortable in interviews. And I'm reflecting on why. And it kind of relates to the topic, which is I don't feel like it's justified or right that 
an emphasis is placed, especially when it comes to my company, on you know my background, my upbringing, my my sort of formative elements. When in my head I'm thinking of these like thousand people, you know, and in, in a, let's say a core of twenty or thirty of them, no one knows their names, and some of these people are like they built this place, they did everything, and you know they created so much of what really now I benefit from. And it's very, very, I find it very uncomfortable to, to be represented as the, you know, I think it's okay to be a leader, to be the face of a company, but that quickly can, in, in success or in failure, can quickly turn into it all being about you. And that's really, really dangerous. I mean, for example, um, there's, a, there's an engineer at the company. He's so bright, so capable, so unbelievable. I've told him this many times and like, we all talk about this. He's probably 10 times smarter than me and well, 10 times more capable than me and Rob kind of put together and developed so many of the key algorithms and pieces of some of our latest tech. And sometimes in interviews or in, in customer meetings, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a computer scientist. I understand, you know, what we do and I'm a deeply technical person in many ways, but it's, it takes a lot of humility to point and go to one or two of the algorithms this, that this guy has invented to be like, I actually have no idea how that works. Like you could sit me down and explain it to me 10 times over, even with a computer science degree. And like, it is beyond my own capacity of understanding, at least without much more concentrated effort. And to create an environment where you're secure in that and where leadership is secure in that and understands that is just so, 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 so important. You know, it's, and it's so difficult to do. I think so many companies, so many cultures are limited by the pride, the fear, and the um, fear, the sort of, um, the kind of, I wouldn't say it's even arrogance. I think it's more the fear of not being the most knowledgeable person that a lot of leadership can have. Um, and this is reinforced by pitching to investors. When you pitch to investors again and again and again and again, they will deny it, but they are desperately looking for a stereotype of the super genius founder that knows everything and does everything and, you know, somehow can make it all work. They don't want to hear the answer, which is, it's not you, it's it's a hundred other people. And so, you know, of course, you, you do all you can to represent the power of your, your team and your work. But I think for an entrepreneur, you know, pitch mode and external mode and internal mode Whenever those get confused, you create a really inauthentic and really difficult culture. Um, and I think a lot of companies have been brought down by um, by leadership losing touch with reality. Yeah, it's interesting as you were speaking. Family answer, apologies. No, I mean, look, the look, the best interviews are the ones where it's, you know, it's conversations, we're having a debate and we're riffing on, um, on our experiences and differences of opinions. So I think it's super important, um, you know. Uh, your meander led me to a meander in my mind, which is like actually, you know, reflecting on why that happens in a culture. Um, I think there's, you know, you could split a found, I mean, a founder, obviously independent person, multiple different facades, but, you know, it made me think there are sort of two approaches why that can happen. And one is an extreme insecurity. Um, and then the other is like a kindness, right? As in you can be doing it with all the right intentions. I'm trying to get all the answers. I'm trying to free you up. I'm trying to help and all of that kind of stuff with the naivety of not realizing that that's not actually helpful at all. I think that's really well said. I think maybe to be even more insidious, I'd say there's probably a deeper problem, which is we have a kind of cult of intelligence in the tech world. We have a almost religious idea of what intelligence is, how to test for it, and what possessing it grants you. And it's completely laughable. Like, as an example, um, when we started Improbable, I've done like 1,500 culture fit interviews myself. And in the beginning, we did hundreds, that's taken thousands of hours, but we did, we did um, hundreds of technical interviews ourselves as founders, right? We thought we were really bright, so we interviewed people over and over again. And we made up our own interview questions, right? So there were these three interview questions, and I, you know, maybe some, somebody on the podcast might have even done them. They were like to do with um, writing a particular algorithm, solving a particular brain teaser. These are the kinds of things you would get asked when you sort of apply to a job at Google or, or you know, apply to university. And the hilarious irony is we 
convinced ourselves through repeated application of these questions, which of course we knew the answers to because we came up with the questions, we convinced ourselves we could assess the quality or intelligence of people. We had all these discussions about how smart this person is or that person is based upon the answers. I mentioned earlier that engineer, this like incredible, incredible talent. Um, recently, we all we had dinner with that engineer and with our, our sort of significant others. And we remembered those questions and we brought them up. And our partners who, don't, who aren't technical could answer those questions and he could not. And he was really sad. He was like, how can I not answer these questions? And it all it clicked for us. We were like, these questions have absolutely nothing to do with the quality of, of, of output of our best people. And they were, they were then, and we knew that a while ago, but they were a complete waste of time. And I guess to reinforce that, 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 that permeates every aspect of the culture in tech. Every aspect of the culture in tech is about the false worship of some sort of like, you know, quantifiable intelligence. And I think we need to fix that problem entirely and, and communicate about and think of intelligence in very different ways and stop trying to rank, rate, or consider the absolute value or quality of people when so much of it is circumstantial or depends on the problem or depends on the situation. Beware the cult of the brilliant dickhead, as they say. Exactly. Yeah, the cult of the brilliant is a, it's a great example. It's like almost as though being a dickhead makes you smarter or it, it correlates with it. Or, you know, or even, or even I, would, I would put it even more succinctly, what the hell does it even mean in a business sense for someone to be smart? How do you measure that, right? What how, what does that even mean, right? You know, how, how does it apply? You know, there are so many different kinds of skill necessary to solve so many diverse problems. So it's very important to move away from that way of thinking. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Improbable was born in 2012, 
Since then, they've developed a business model that is unique, not only building technology to support a network of metaverses, don't worry, I will ask Herman to explain what this all means at some point, but also virtual worlds that have applications in defense. The company didn't start out to do all that. When Herman met co-founder Rob Whitehead, whilst they were both studying computer science at Cambridge University, they had a simpler dream. We loved video games, we wanted to go live there, and we didn't understand why we couldn't. And it felt like there were just these hopelessly limited environments where we could not experience the things or do the things intuitively we wanted to do. It took us a long time to express them. Recently, I'm launching a book now called Virtual Society, which goes through this in excruciating detail. But like, really, virtual worlds are not just some sort. We we realized then virtual worlds are not a game. They're just more life. They're just more reality. And they, they increase the possibilities of growth and experience for individuals in really profound ways. You know, and it wasn't fashionable to think that way then. Now it has become fashionable with the metaverse becoming kind of a big deal. And we started the company to attack the really, really hard distributed systems problems that we felt would unlock you know, the ability to have thousands of people in one world, like we did earlier this year, who could all speak or who could all interact. We were also complete idiots. Like, you know, Rob got it first. I did, I did really badly compared to him. And we thought we were really smart. And these problems were just so much harder than we could have imagined. Like, if you could, if you, if you sent me back in time now to explain to myself what it would take, how much it would cost, and how hard those problems would be, I don't think I could convince my younger self to start this company. Like, it, we thought it would take a year. It took 10 years. We thought it would take, like, 100 people. It's taken 1,000 people. We thought it would take a couple of iterations. It's taken, like, multiple iterations. So, you know, sometimes it can be good to be dumb because you attack a problem that is so much harder than you realize, and you luck out, and you bring enough smart people together, and you actually find a way to solve it. Yeah, right. That naivety is actually part of it, right? That naivety that can, the hope, the hope is what keeps you going. Look, you can, you can, you can call it naivety. I refer to our own behavior more as stupidity. I think that's probably a, an easier way to describe it. You know, we, we really were super dumb. You know, I'll give you some classic examples of our really dumb decisions. So, and I think other startup founders can relate to this. You know, when you're clever at one thing, you seem you're clever at everything and you're going to disrupt everything. So in the beginning of Improbable, we're like, you know, we're not going to have an HR department. No, we're going to have a people team, right? Because something, something disruption. And inevitably it became an HR department. But, you know, there's this desperate need to do things, you know, in a new way, right? But not everything needs to be disrupted or done in a new way. So many things are better done in the way that they're already being done because, you know what, they work. Um, you know, and so this is, it's a very Silicon Valley kind of ethos. It, and again, it's, it was, it's magnified by investor expectations. You know, investors, and the people who want to back you or promote you, they, they desperately seek some signal, some sign from the gods that you have something magical about you, right? And that is a, that is a very difficult expectation to, to internalize and to understand and to ignore. I think a lot of the things founders need to do is realize that investors are not magical people. Lots of people did not back Improbable early on. Um, you know, some did and made a lot of money. And then, you know, and, and since then, as our valuation have grown, other, others did. I wouldn't say that looking back, you know, there was any... The, even if you, if I had pitched myself, I don't know that I would have discerned, uh, you know, the value of this company over other opportunities at that time. It's really difficult for investors to, to make that decision. But yet, as entrepreneurs, we spend so much of our time being judged by and feeling judged by, uh, you know, these external forces. I think, you know, with a with a journey like yours, though, um, in a sense, like the trick is, um, do I believe these people are smart enough and passionate enough about the problem they're trying to solve as one tick? Um, the other is, um, are they going to be good at raising money? 
Because if you are a smart investor, you will at least have more, like you call yourself stupid. Investors wouldn't have been stupid about how much money you'd have to raise. They might have thought you were being stupid and naive, but they would need to have some belief that you're going to be able to raise money because a big vision like this, the biggest risk is running out of money before you can bring a a meaningful product to market, um, get customers, all of the other bits and pieces. And the third one obviously is, you know, are they going to be able to um, figure out like from a technicality point of view, like how to build the tech? I would assume um, the things you did super well in the early days was demonstrate that you could build the tech because you're smart computer grad people from Cambridge and like, fuck it, that's a punt. Why not? Like, if you, if not you, then who? Uh, that's one, like, maybe tick gone. And the other one would be you deeply care about the problem because, you know, you're geeks and you're working on something together and that's fun and all that kind of vibe. Take me through how on earth, though, you figured out the third part of the problem, which is, you know, funding in the early days. So, like, take us back to the beginning, if you don't mind, first couple of years. Like, how do you fund this as an idea? I think this is going to disappoint a lot of people um, and maybe be, maybe be quite apocalyptic in some ways, right? But, um, no, we're very lucky. We have incredibly smart investors, people like Chris Dixon. When Andreessen Horowitz invested in Improbable, lots of other people passed up. Um, they did. And they, they kind of saw the technology and the other key pieces because what we were doing was insane in terms of ambition level. And you know, later on, we're really pleased we got backed by people like SoftBank and since then others. And, you know, earlier this year, we got um, a lot of amazing investors to help back kind of our token run where we were going. We also benefited from the fact that the time at which, like the last 10 years were this glorious golden age of money that will not come back again for a very, very long time. Like the, 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 the current macroeconomic issues are not only bad in a superficial way. They represent a complete rearrangement of how companies are going to get funded, who is going to fund them and how businesses, what businesses have to prove in order to be valuable. Like now, our only focus as a company, and we're very, very lucky that in the last year and a half to two years, we found our product market fit and generated significant revenue. It's all about, you know, profitability, revenue, margins, right? Back then, people were willing, look at companies like DeepMind. You know, DeepMind is an incredible business that would never, ever get funded today because they're just, you know, it was funded at a time when investors were excited and able to invest in technology without a business model, right? There are so many companies, SpaceX is a, is a great example of a company that, you know, was able to raise gigantic sums of capital and do so much, you know, but back then didn't didn't really have a business model, right? That time, that kind of like free moment is 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 gone, and I think investors now, at least for a while, are going to be hyper focused on financials, which is quite sad because it means a lot of really great ideas at Angel, at Seed, at Series A, just not going to get funded. They're not going to go move forward. So I think Improbable definitely benefited from solving a really hard technical problem and having a really great team. We also benefited from an investment climate that was extremely favorable to companies like us. Uh, you know, we were pitching the right kind of idea at the right time. It, and that's very, very difficult to, to replicate. Um, you know, you saw this also in the pandemic, you know, where there are companies in the UK uh, that raised a huge amount of money, the autonomous vehicles, you know, how many companies have raised money and even listed with zero revenue, zero revenue, zero customers. Um, you know, that that is very aberrant. And I think for a lot of startup founders, our entire understanding of how to run companies has come from a period of time, which made, which is now going to be looked back on as making very little sense. And, you know, in the future will require very different thinking, like much leaner thinking, much more revenue oriented thinking. I think investors are going to care a lot less about what your technology does and a lot more about how much money you make and how soon. Well, actually, you know, it is an un, you know, not often enough said point which you can only really reflect on if you are the very fortunate few like yourself, where you realize that 
you know, success at the top end, like Improbable has, is absolutely partly about phenomenal vision and finding the right investors to fund the vision through all of the mistakes and all of the things you don't get right and all of the burn until you find product market fit and all of those things, but also timing. Um, you know, very- You should use the word luck, right? And this is, this is, this is the problem, right? Like, of course it's luck. Of course it's luck, right? Even the, the fit we found now with the metaverse, the fact that much of our pipeline of customers and this enormous revenue growth comes from ways of applying our technology that we could never have predicted when we started the company, that none of our investors could have predicted or, or done another. Of, of course, of course it's luck. And I think that leads to a really strange and difficult, you know, understanding of the actual skill of being in a startup, which is not being the smartest person in the room or intelligence. I think it's just horrifying perseverance. You know, you just have to sort of like survive long enough with a group of people you like enough to get there. I'm surprised actually at how endurance rather than intelligence appeared to be, at least in my journey, have been more important qualities in, in you know, in kind of in moving forward. And yeah, of course it's luck. And therefore, when you fail, it's not necessarily your fault. You know, and that's also very difficult to internalize, especially I think in British entrepreneurship. American entrepreneurship seems much more forgiving of failure. In British entrepreneurship, you know, if you raise a bunch of money and you fail, the press will literally gut you. Like they will gut you. They will they will rip you to pieces um, in 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 ways that are really really unfortunate. You know, we've had some bad press over the years, and every time it happens, it's very difficult to um, you know, it's it's it has a really deep effect on you and on the people around you, and you have to learn to get through it. But it is really tough. So. You know, this brings us on nice, you know, nicely halfway through the interview to ask, you know, for our audience, um, so they have the right context, you know, what is Improbable? How do you describe it to your grandmother? We are a company that makes virtual worlds and we make the tools to support virtual worlds and make them better. And what we do is we're creating essentially an internet of metaverses. So our customers build worlds, they pay us to build the worlds, all those worlds link together and all those worlds allow for new kinds of experiences. So what are those new kinds of experiences? Well, if you've ever wanted to take thousands of people around the world who love football and put them into one environment where they can all speak with their own voices, can all interact together, can all have experiences or interact with a celebrity, we make all of that possible. We also power, um, and we don't talk about this much, but we also power a lot of different games companies uh, by providing them with multiplayer expertise. So we work with about 60 different publishers behind the scenes, helping them with lots of different problems. And our technology is also applied in real world simulation and challenges like defense. So you know, we're actually in active use in helping solve defense problems. That's kind of almost a sub-company now that may spin out uh, in the future. And so that's what we do. We're, we're a virtual worlds company. That's what, we, that's what we do. And the metaverse is kind of, we never used that word early on, but it has always been kind of our guiding light and what we're aiming to support, power, and build. Many years ago, I'd heard about you guys. Um, you know, I think you'd, you'd, you'd just got the investment from SoftBank. You'd become a unicorn no one, you know, no layman like myself, no one had ever seen what you guys do or anything, just heard the rumors, you know, you, it was kind of like, you know, to give you the perspective from the outside in, you just sort of not just arrived on the scene because I think people were aware of what you guys are doing, but that was a big statement in London. It was a very unusual UK story for a tech company to become a unicorn without anyone really knowing what the hell these people did and everything else. And I learned at that time that, um, and this is my, my understanding of what you were doing. So tell me if this is correct. Um, I heard that you were doing the virtual world stuff and whatever else. And you're like, okay, cool, video game stuff. Kind of get it. That sounds interesting. But I'd heard that one of the really interesting applications where you'd had a lot of success was actually working with defense departments in creating 
a battle zone. This is my understanding, so please correct me and, and explain it properly. Creating battle zone environments so that soldiers could go through training and scenarios as if, you know, in the real uh, battle. So they're not actually getting physically hurt. They're learning about what an enemy would do in combat situations, etc., etc. Um, is that right? Is that was that assumption correct, or can you explain it better? Kind of, it's even cooler than that, to be honest. And now, now that it's sort of, um, I think I can talk about it more because it's now more active. So. It, it goes far beyond defense, and it was probably um, one of the reasons why we stood out so much back then, and now um, is, a, is a significant yet almost independent business now in the way it functions. What we're able to do is build really big models of the real world that were not possible before because no one could build them accurately, no one could prove their accuracy, and no one could connect the models together or run them at sufficient scale. So today, right now live, we have simulations of countries with 100 companies worth of models, power grids, telecommunications networks, all sorts of things. And these models can be used to solve all sorts of problems, like figure out what would happen if you had a particular response to coronavirus or didn't, figure out you know, what vulnerabilities might exist that you need to secure, figure out how to help train um, people in a military operation, you know, and this, this capability of simulating the real world is really, really important in, in, in all kinds of challenges. Like we've been used to things like thinking about how climate change might require the electrification of a grid. If you can't simulate systems like this, you just can't understand them. And even small changes in them can create really crazy effects. So a lot of public policy um, needs this to be well-informed you know, over the next 10, 20 years. In fact, you know, given the kind of recent and really immense kind of growth of our entertainment metaverse and gaming applications. I think in all of that messaging and all of some of the stuff that happened this year, it's kind of been lost publicly how much our that side of our business has also moved forward. Um, and this has been very unusual for us. You know, usually a company does like one thing really well. We've been very lucky in that we found two sets of product market fit and success pretty much simultaneously in kind of the last two years in, in the way we've been applied. And that's really weird. It's like, you know, we're almost two businesses um, that, that yes, share some technology, but are actually quite different in the way they're structured and in the problems that they solve. Um, you know, and, and what's been very helpful has been to have a separate leadership team hyper-focused on, on problems in defense in the real world. Uh, and that's really supported the growth quite well. Yeah, and there's the reason I wanted to bring this up because um, I do have the content, you know, like I said, we share an investor. I, um, I'd heard about you many, many, many years ago. Um, I and this was just the coolest thing that I'd I'd heard that really helped me understand why and how a practical application of what you do exists. And I feel like you know we're going to talk about the metaverse, etc. My view personally is metaverse is fun. I'm I'm into it. I'm into Web three. I enjoy all the stuff. I've geeked out on it, etc., etc. Um, but you can't escape the real world. So the other side of your business is surely more important. Yeah, but I challenge you on that. I think. For me personally, my journey, and you talked about adaptation and learning and the change, I came into this thinking we were working on entertainment, like that we were going to let people have more fun. But if you look now at the worlds we're enabling and building and the things that are going to be announced and are launching, people are going to get jobs inside these spaces. You know, this is, this is transformative in a way I never thought about, right? Like if I'm a cricket fan in India and I have a 3G phone, and I've never been to Lord's Cricket Ground. I've never, ever interacted with thousands of other fans. I couldn't afford to. I've never even experienced what it's like to be in that crowd. Or I've never met a famous player. With the click of a button, I can put you in that crowd and give you that experience and allow you to actually relate to people all around the world in ways that have never been possible before. That's not a video game. That is entertainment, sort of. But I would call it more fulfillment. And I talk about this a lot in my book, but I think... We're going to be entering into this sort of age of experiences where a big part of the role 
companies and society have to play is providing as many people as possible with important, fulfilling and growing experiences. And I think we, you know, we've demonized kind of play and fun as being a distraction from, you know, as you just said, now you can't escape the real world. I don't think that the real world that we're living in right now is all that real. You know, we, we are today living in many worlds, right? Like sport, culture, politics, you know, ideas, misinformation, information. We're all continually beset by a series of different realities that already create and have tangible effects, good and bad, on our real lives. 2022 has been a hell of a year for Improbable. In April, they announced they had raised $150 million to build and develop M-Squared, a network of metaverses powered by their Morpheus technology. So, how does this all work? And how is it different to just being in a video game? Video games, in some ways, while they share a lot with what I envision the metaverse to be in that they involve virtual experiences, they're a lot more limited. They're like more like a closed network of meaning. Like what happens in World of Warcraft stays in World of Warcraft, right? And it doesn't make a lot of sense to connect kind of World of Warcraft to Call of Duty because they're both very different worlds and very different realities. Now, once you can start having digital experiences, once you can start creating virtual worlds, which are not limited by the real world, then you can create even more incredible networks of meaning and value, right? So suddenly, you know, thousands or millions of people can have a participatory interactive relationship with entirely imaginary worlds. And value can go back and forth from those worlds in the real world. To make that happen, though, you need three ingredients that are not present in normal video games. The first is you need really interesting experiences that go beyond regular video games and play, like beyond kind of things like Call of Duty. You need experiences that can be relevant to real world culture. So that's the problem we spent a long time solving. How do you have thousands of people together? How do you make meaningful worlds? The second thing is you need some way of actually creating value that can be exchanged, earned, and, and brought between worlds. And this is where cryptocurrency has proven to be really important because blockchain and cryptocurrency allow value to move from one world to another. They allow value to accrue to a person in the virtual world and then for that to be relevant in the real world. And lastly, you need the worlds themselves to relate to each other. You need the experiences and the content to actually build on top of each other. So with in the real world, to use an example, fashion, sport, and music, they build on each other, right? Like it makes sense to bring fashion, sport, and music together. They, they in fact, they're tightly wound together. Think of a brand like Nike. What is Nike about? Nike is about all kinds of things that start in sport and end in lifestyle and change fashion and on other elements. So talk to me a little bit about how you've developed your business model. Like, how have you, how have you guys figured out how to make money? Because it, it sounds obvious in a sense, but I'd love to know the detail. I think what's been kind of amazing is realizing, again, through all humility over the last two years, that um, we could take a completely different approach to other people. So... Uh, traditionally in video games, uh, there are three problems. User acquisition is incredibly expensive. You have to spend literally billions of dollars to acquire users for big games. You have to somehow keep all of these people happy and retain them. You have to pay loads of money for content. And we discovered this too when we were making our own content, which was very, very expensive. And then even if you get those two things right, you have to monetize those experiences. And this is why, you know, there is so much failure in kind of the video game market in online games and in other spaces. What we've now managed to do with Improbable is take a really different approach to how we attack the problem of building a metaverse. So instead of doing all of those things, we've made a network that our large customers and partners who all have massive communities of users that they can join. And in, in so doing, they take on the cost of acquiring users. They invest in and build content, which we build for them, which gives us a very powerful revenue generation engine even before any world launches. Like It makes us incredibly... Um, 
It's incredibly cash generative even before uh, you kind of get out there. And then although we take less of a share of the profit than we would if we were building a closed platform or store, we create a lot more opportunities for investment and growth for all of our partners. And another key insight for us that changed a lot from the early days to now, like our original product, Spatial OS, was really challenged in a lot of ways. It took a long time to get to where we are now with M squared and Morpheus, which enable all this metaverse stuff. Um, the other really crucial insight we had is that if we enable interoperability between our customers, if we allow them to actually create value by sharing content with each other, suddenly we create a network effect that isn't a network effect that, that you know, we and we alone control and benefit from, but that actually encourages our customers to protect the network and to grow the network. So in a really short space of time, we've managed to attract a whole bunch of partners and you know, some have publicly been announced like uh, Yuga Labs with Bored Apes Yacht Club who, have, who themselves can see themselves making a lot of money and we make money as facilitating the entry into the network, but the network itself becomes valuable too. And I think long-term, the network could be something that, you know, you know, improbable doesn't govern, actually. Maybe it could be governed by, by our partners and by users. That's a very different model. Um, if you look at somebody like Epic Games or, or Valve or Steam, they want to own the user, own the store, own everything. Facebook has the same approach. The trouble with that is that you end up having to pay an infinite amount of money to get all of these content providers to, to host content and to build content for your store, your community, and your users. And once again, I think that's the product of the age of free money, right? And it's going to be very hard to operate that way. So our model is very different. You know, we play maybe more of a enabling role, but that allows us to grow much more efficiently. We don't have to spend any money on growth or user acquisition or marketing. You talked about Facebook, you know, this is their business model and Epic Games, that's their business model. Like, how do you um, liken... Um, yeah, how do you liken Improbable's business model and and potential and space in the future, in the next 10, 20 years as the internet's going to develop for what people can understand over the last 10, 20 years? The first thing is we enable experiences nobody else enables. So to put this in perspective, to run 100 people in a game for like a game of Fortnite, which is what Epic Games does. And, you know, when you hear about things like the Travis Scott concert, those are actually not millions of people in one world. Those are thousands of instances of 100 people in small worlds, um, all looking at a pre-recording. To do that successfully is actually really hard. And they have to process like 10,000 messages a second on the back end in order to handle 100 players in a world. That's something most games companies still struggle with. We can handle a billion messages on the back end. And that's what we stated publicly. It's actually a lot more than that now because of these years of technology development. So we can support thousands of people in the same world cheaply and efficiently. And that, that boy, was that a long and painful and hard road if you've seen some of our early failures. Um, and that means we can enable all sorts of experiences for companies that just weren't possible before. Like if a famous celebrity wants to hang out with thousands of their fans in one space, there's nowhere else to go. We are literally the only game in town at being able to do that. So that has, that has been a really important differentiator, especially with the increased interest in the metaverse. But the other big differentiation is the business model, right? We are not, we're not selling licensing or, um, or providing technology to partners. We're inviting them to join a network in which they can be co-owners and stakeholders. They can build a platform business. They can own the user. We are like a platform of platforms that wires it all together and creates value both for our customers and for us through that approach. That is a, quite a different model of building a platform. Very, very unusual and not something that has been possible before. The reason it's possible is because we're able to power the thing through blockchain infrastructure. And in that market, people are a lot more comfortable sharing value with one another. It's a lot easier to quantify how value moves from one world to the other. It becomes a lot easier to sell people on the proposition of sharing users, sharing digital assets, sharing value into a single network. And I think in some ways, that's the other insight that I've been surprised by. 
I thought blockchain was a consumer disruption, and it certainly is. But it's shockingly for me much more of a B2B disruption. It can change the relationship companies can have with each other. It can change the way in which they can build businesses that are mutually supportive to each other. You know, it's really, really strange. But like, you know, there's been this kind of tyrannical winner-takes-all model in tech. You know, every startup entrepreneur wants to build like this Apple-like machine with a totally vertically integrated everything. And I think the, you know, the future will now see a lot more of these dynamic, organic networks of companies that create value in a much more interesting and shared way. Okay, so I have so many questions, but before, <laughs> I, before I jump off, let me just uh, focus on one thing. A lot of people talk about the metaverse. What do you define as the metaverse? And the reason I ask it is because you've just said multiple metaverses, multiple systems. So is it the metaverse or multiple? How do you define it? Explain it well, to us like we're idiots and then explain it yes. to us like we're geniuses. I think this is something that really does need to get said about more publicly. So there, I'm going to start with what it is and then I'll talk about what it is. Currently, the word is meaningless. It literally has been used to mean everything from Disney Plus to video games to, I, I don't know, everything is a metaverse now, right? There's a, there's a, there's a you know, Microsoft Excel is now a metaverse in, in some people's minds, right? You can, you can basically uh, use it as marketing speak for the next iteration of the internet. I hate that definition. I think it's a terrible way of looking at it. To be much more specific, a metaverse is a collection of worlds that form a network of shared personalities, objects, meaning, context which enables you as a person to have useful and valuable experiences which are enabled by that context. So my definition doesn't even involve technology. And as I argue in my book, I think the notion of a metaverse is actually much more important than just the digital metaverse. So to answer your question, is there one metaverse or many? There are many. There are many networks of worlds that can be relevant, valuable, and self-sufficient. And, you know, we are building one of them. And how big do you believe um, that you can get at this point? And 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 um, I'd love to, I'd love to. There's two ways I'm answering this. Like one, I want to know your your deep, passionate insight as an entrepreneur that has already managed. I'm imagine like I expect you've already managed to hit your first major milestone when the company was first envisioned, right? Because you have commercial clients, you have built these things for defense for the metaverse. So you're kind of there. Yeah. Look, every single element of our culture is in a sense under monetized, right? There are, there are fans of football all over the world. There are people who love musicians all over the world who don't have very many ways of engaging with that, with those, with those partners, like who've never been to a game or who've never met a certain celebrity or who've never come together in a certain element of culture. Think about the fashion industry. The fashion industry is like absolutely colossal in size, entirely based on the perceived value of, you know, completely made up things. So what you're really asking me is not how big can Improbable get. What you're asking me is how big is the limit of a quantifiable economy of digital assets and experiences that extends human culture? And I think that it will completely swallow our economy. I think it will completely swallow how people spend, our, spend their spare time, how people are educated, how people make and have the most important meaning and meaningful relationships in their lives. And I think that I think that limit, I think it is literally limitless. I think we're at the beginning of something kind of like the internet. And now it will take time. And yes, for now, people are conflating it a lot with video games. But it it's already starting to evolve in very unusual ways. Okay. Thank you for answering that uh seriously as well. Um because you know, obviously as I'm trying to understand, you know, uh you know, how how all of this stuff fits together, I you know, I try to make these analogies in my own head and my own mind and ask you questions like how big can you get you know the point is to say you know can you overtake a company like google because what i'm hearing it feels like you could i think that's almost again the wrong the wrong perspective because 
that era, like you're, the dinosaur, the, the Cretaceous period is ending, right? It's no longer worthwhile thinking about trying to become like the companies that have come before, which are large consolidated monopolies built around an impossible um, level of, of, of like entrenched advantage. Regulators, consumers, and content creators, and the businesses that comprise our world have learned the negatives of that, right? And, and won't so easily allow that to happen again. So if you want to build a really, really big company now or a really big, uh, big um, network of value now, you have to think in terms of alliances. It's a different kind of world. In, in the size of Facebook and Google and Amazon is buried a lot of waste for the world economy. There are a lot of other companies that could exist that now can't. Imagine how many messaging companies could exist if they could build off of the database that, that Facebook had efficiently, right? If that was a public commons, how, how cool would that be? Imagine how, many, how much innovation there would be, right? So, you know, I think, especially in Britain, we have this like fantasy that we want to build Britain's Google or compete with Silicon Valley. None of those rules, that world doesn't exist anymore. For one, you know, your company, where your company is based just means nothing anymore. Like we're entirely distributed around the world, you know. Yeah, remote thanks I, to COVID, so forget about well, it. Well, there we go, and, and the metaverse moving forward. So like, you know, questions like London startup scene or wherever doesn't matter anymore. And investors also have stopped caring where, you, where you're based. So I think we're entering into a new world. I think the old world is dead. And I think the sooner entrepreneurs start thinking about this new world, the faster we can, um, you know, we can capitalize on that and create value. Okay. If improbable succeeds, what is the best case scenario about, you know, this is if improbable succeeds long term and so does therefore permeating Web3 metaverse world. What are the positive outcomes of that world 10 years from now? For me, on the positive side, I haven't actually given too much thought on the negative side. So um, it's not my job. It's yours. So I hope that you might have done. But on the positive side, I actually think about people with disabilities. I think about people with loneliness. Um, I think about... Um, all of those things and actually the the way that um, virtual worlds and the metaverse can create meaningful connections and give people opportunities to connect outside of the sadness of their own mind. I, you know, I grew up with a, a parent with a heavy disability and I, it's always made me think about the greatest opportunity in VR, metaverse, etc. is the freeing up out of your own body. Sometimes your body is the greatest limitation. And for those people... Um, you know, this is not uh, a negative at all. It's the most freeing opportunity that they might actually get to experience. I'd say that I am very focused on this because, again, uh, for the book, I've thought a lot about this and talked to a lot of psychologists because I'm very interested in the impact of, of virtual worlds on, on the mind in general. The, it, the best research and theories we have come from an area of psychology called self-determination theory. And what this says is that everybody, you, I, everyone listening to this podcast, everybody has intrinsic motivations and this is very important, that must be fulfilled. And these are motivations that we have that you can roughly separate into three areas, competence, autonomy, and relatedness. So if you're a human being, even if you have enough to eat, even if you have a, a well-paying job, if you do not have opportunities to grow in competence by being challenged and solving problems and being pushed and then getting the satisfaction of succeeding, or relatedness, the chance to mean something to other people, or autonomy, the chance to make meaningful choices as, as you might in an adventure. If you are not fed a steady diet of enriching and fulfilling experiences, you suffer and it is very bad for your mental health. And we talk a lot about financial inequality, but we don't talk enough about inequality of meaning. You know, there are a lot of like tech utopians who believe that if everybody had a min income, everything would be fine. No, it wouldn't. Like philosophers like John Rawls have long argued and you know have talked about 
the, the basic challenge of a society with imbalance in meaning and participation. Like everyone deserves a chance to actually play an important role, be the hero of a story, be able to create something, have that opportunity. That is the single most important thing beyond you know, surviving that we need to give people a chance to like prosper and thrive and grow. And too much of our society is organized around the idea of bullshit jobs, like jobs that literally we we have created. There's actually a book called Bullshit Jobs that I reference heavily in my book. But, you know, there are jobs that are that that it doesn't matter how much you pay people to do them. They are literally damaging to people's mental health on a fundamental level because they give them no opportunity for growth, for fulfillment or for or, or, or for becoming more. So. If we forget the metaverse for a second, let's say we do nothing. Let's say we don't build virtual worlds. We don't create these other experiences. And we automate more and more of our economy and we concentrate more and more wealth in the hands of a few people. What the hell is the point of a society that grants no one that that fulfillment? And if we don't provide it, people become very, very angry and frustrated. And more than that, people's lives are, are much poorer. So what the metaverse could do is it could create an entirely new engine of fulfillment that lets a lot more people have those opportunities. So I, I, I wouldn't even say that it would be a nice to have. I think it is essential that we provide everybody with a chance to have a fulfilling and interesting adventure and experience in, you know, in different forms. What are the downsides? I think the downsides are that someone will find some horrible twisted way to use this in, in a negative sense as well. I'm sure, you know, immersive virtual environments can be used for good and for ill. I'm certain of it. Um, you know, the good news is that at least the fundamental economics favor positivity in the sense that you can't retain users if you don't provide them with fulfillment and you can't fake fulfillment. A virtual experience is just a real experience. You can't give someone a fake friend and have them feel relatedness. You have to actually give them that fulfillment. As opposed to social media, where social media is just focused on attention and ads. It doesn't care if you're happy or fulfilled or engaged. It just wants you to pay attention for a second. And so I think, you know, hopefully the metaverse's core economics and business model could result in a healthier future. Hamid, what is your piece of advice that you would leave to listeners that want to go on a big epic journey to build something meaningful in their lives like you? I would say look to look to the next 10 years as being completely different from the last 10, right? Like the asteroid has struck, the dinosaurs are all going to die in a giant cloud of ash and destruction. And you now need to figure out what being an entrepreneur even means in this new climate. You know, like ignore all of the models of success that you think you want to model yourself on. And in that also lies a lot of opportunity. There's probably some very cool new opportunities that this that this situation will arise. But you just be really, really conscious of the macroeconomics of the world that we're living in because it's it's shifting in really fundamental ways. I um, mean, you know, lots of trends from globalization to China to just so many things have shifted in the way the world is. I, I would I would not be insular and think about what you want to make. I would stop and look out at the world and understand how it's changing. I wish I had done that at many times through Improbable's history. Amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Herman. It's been a pleasure. No worries. See you around. Herman Narula, the CEO and co-founder of Improbable. His book's full title is Virtual Society, the Metaverse and the New Frontiers of Human Experience. That's it for this season of Secret Leaders, but don't worry, we'll still be putting out our bite-sized episodes and we'll be back with our next season in a few weeks. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolomon.